0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball history podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Jeff. Uh, Joining me from the comfort of the Seattle-based studios is my usual co-host, Mark A. Johnston. Mark, welcome.
1: Man, it is so good to be here. I've been watching uh, spring training games uh, for the past week, and, uh, you know, I feel... I don't know. It's like uh, it's like being in a methadone clinic. It's not real baseball, but it's going to at least fill the void. I
0: refuse to go to a methadone clinic.
1: Oh, man, Uh, give me some of my relatives. But anyway, I'm
0: just going to quit cold turkey. Uh, Yeah, I'm actually I've got the A's uh, Indians game on a second screen here. I'll try to stare scare straight ahead here. But all right. So, Mark, uh, we've had uh, what is this? Episode 55, I think, already. Yeah, I think so. All right, so let's, uh, Mark, i like to give you an option. We can talk about baseball history as we have for 54 previous episodes. Or I thought maybe we could talk about calf roping and the sport's own Babe Ruth, Mason Saunders, who we learned about last week.
1: I think I've picked baseball most of the time, haven't I?
0: I think you have. I think it's probably a good idea. I'm trying to figure out how Madison Bumgarner came up with Mason Saunders. Like, generally, it's like a little play off of your real name, but... Right. Mason Saunders, I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's odd. I have a fake name I, I like to use. Johnny Washington. Johnny Washington is my real name. <laughs> oh,
0: I didn't mean. No, shoot that's right. Like now a, you're gonna get.
1: If I was a professional wrestler, I would go by the name Uther Bachman.
0: Okay. I see you as like a big Vader, big Van Vader type with the big
1: Van Vader. Hell yeah.
0: Then maybe you could have been on Boy Meets World. That was what? Yeah, Boy Meets World. Big Van Vader was on
1: that. Oh yeah. That's right.
0: All right. Well, well, we'll talk about baseball history. Ben, I think that's a good thing. I got a lot of stuff to talk about, so that works out for both of us. Okay, yeah, good. Let's get into some BP first. So I, I, I threw something up there on Twitter last week and got quite a bit of response, so I wanted to talk about it a little bit more. It was on February 27th, 1912, that the then New York Highlanders, because the Yankees was just a nickname at that point, they were still referred to as the Highlanders, Announced that they would add pinstripes to their home uniforms for the uh, upcoming 1912 season. Oh, wow. So that was the first time the Yankees did it. They removed it the next season, and they did not bring them back until 1936. Wow. So do you know what that means? And this was what I think got the most response, is that Babe Ruth never played in pinstripes.
1: That's crazy. I know, isn't it, though? I I mean, you just imagine him in pinstripes.
0: Absolutely, because it's so iconic with the Yankees and, you know, obviously it's Babe Ruth. You think that he would wear pinstripes, but never did. Never did. Also, I, I would just like, this is a little PSA to Yankee fans out there. If you buy a pinstripe Yankee jersey with a player's name on the back, it is not an actual jersey.
1: Uh, yeah, I got to agree with Jeff on this one. You, you don't wear a number four that says Gehrig
0: no and i just no why would you why would you spend that money on a jersey that just doesn't look like anything anybody on the yankees has ever worn
1: (laughs) i don't get it Uh, i I, I don't get it either but then again i'm not a yankee fan no but
0: let's uh just quickly back on on the subject of pinstripes other teams had wore pinstripes long before the yankees the 1907 cubs wore pinstripes Back in eighteen eighty eight, the Washington Nationals, and they were called the Nationals at that time, wore them. The Detroit Wolverines wore them that same year, and the Brooklyn bridegrooms, of course, <laughs> wore them. Course. Now the bride the bridegrooms were, were kind of different because in eighteen eighty two they wore, every every player at a different position wore a different jersey. So they all wore the same pants, but if you were a first baseman, you wore this colored of striped shirt. <laughs> if you were a second baseman, you wore a different color. I don't know why they what? needed to separate them, but yeah, you can you can look it up online. There's a bunch of pictures of these different colored <laughs> pinstripe jerseys that these teams would wear by position. So That's
1: crazy. I have never heard of that.
0: Yeah, there you go. So we talked about this a little bit off off mic before the podcast and we talked about the uh, the Orioles White Sox game from April 29th 2015 where they played in front of an empty house because of civil unrest and I thought to myself after we did that I'm like wait I know <laughs> I know the director of the Orioles production staff his name's Mike Stashek. And so I called him. Well, actually, he called me about something else. And I said, hey, can I ask you something? <laughs> uh, so I asked him about that game. And they did play music uh, in between innings. They played music for walk-ups for the home team. They didn't do things like uh, they did not do the seventh inning stretch. OK. So they didn't play Take Me Out to the Ballpark. And I think they play they play a John Denver song. I forget right after that, you know.
1: Oh okay. Yeah, everybody's a said. seventh inning sc- song. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, so kinda like Sweet Caroline in, in Boston. Right. But yeah, I remember he said it was it was really <laughs> really weird being there because you could hear, you know, Gary Thorne calling the game just down the hall, and so could the players, and you could hear everything the players said, but they didn't run any um any LED screens, you know, the ribbon boards. I believe he said though they did run the big screen though. Okay. But it was a real slim down production, but man, I guess I, I remember. You know, we talk about that, but we also talk about Japanese baseball quite a bit here. And I mentioned, I think last show or the show before, that they were going to play the preseason because of the coronavirus to an empty house. Right? They were they were not letting fans in for the entire preseason, but they're televising that and. Uh, there's some pictures that are really odd to see a, a game going on in just these huge stadiums with nobody in it.
1: But Yeah, that's crazy.
0: I'm going to give you 10 seconds to answer this next question. Okay, 10 seconds. Okay, which club nickname starts with the same three letters as the city they play in?
1: Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Oakland Oaks.
0: The, uh, well, you know, that, that worked at one time, yes.
1: Well, at least it's an answer
0: so the answer the philadelphia phillies
1: oh sure Duh.
0: yeah yeah once once you say it it's like yeah, yeah that's silly okay yeah i found a couple of those that were you know i tried to answer them as quick as possible and then when i couldn't because of the pressure and i found the answer i was like uh i'm an yeah.
1: idiot yeah, that's usually
0: yeah. the way it is. All right, so let's uh, you know we're getting close to the end of doing these minor league teams because once the regular season starts, we'll have some debuts. But we are until that point, we're highlighting a minor league team every week that is being threatened by Major League Baseball to be disassociated with the MLB. So today we have chosen the Jackson Generals. The Jackson Generals are uh, they they're based in Jackson, Tennessee. Formed in 1998. I know you know about them a bit because they used to be the Mariners franchise for quite a while. Yep. So currently they are the Diamondbacks AA club. As I mentioned, they were formerly the Mariners and originally the Cubs. They used to be the Memphis Chicks who relocated in 1998 from Memphis. Do you remember? I remember it's a very famous, at least in my mind, Sports Illustrated cover of Bo Jackson. Oh, yeah. In a Memphis Chicks uniform.
1: Yep. I absolutely, because my friend was playing had played for the Memphis Chicks the previous season. And so yeah. I was pretty familiar with them. And when they sent Bo there, I was like, Oh man, why isn't Thad still on that team?
0: Yeah, I remember the Memphis Chicks. So they moved to Jackson. They when they moved there though, they were called the West Tennessee Diamond Jacks. Jax, though, is J-A-X-X. Jax, okay. And I re- I remember the hat and stuff. And I, it literally just hit me that they were called the Jax because they're in Jackson, Tennessee now. Because oh. I was questioning what the hell's a Jax. But there you go. There you go. Uh, Sarge the Bulldog is their current mascot. They play in the Southern League, and they've won the Southern League title four times, once under the Cubs, once under the Mariners, and now twice under the Diamondbacks. Uh, if you are interested, they can be heard locally on Radio Willie ninety four point one. Of course, <laughs> Radio Willie. Shout out to Radio Willie. Uh, Doug drebeck was the pitching coach last year, and it was just announced uh, he will be back again. So Luke there's Drabeck, a big league, a
1: darn fine pitcher in his own right. Now I thought his
0: son also played. Yeah, he didn't didn't have the. I thought I thought he made the majors. He didn't, you know, quite have the big time debut like. Sure. You know, a Guerrero and, and the, all these other guys, but I thought he played. Most of the alumni are mostly Mariners, the best well, you know, the, the most well-known ones, most sure. of who are still playing today. Uh, Edwin Diaz, James Paxton, Kyle Seeger, Rich Hill also played there. Hmm. And then I'm assuming these two were when they were with the Cubs. Nomar Garcia-Para had a little time there, as did Carlos Zambrano.
1: Some, some talent.
0: Yeah, so those are some of the, the most well-known players. And if you are interested, if you happen to be around Jackson, Tennessee in July this year, Snoop Dogg and Twista will be performing at the ballpark at Jackson.
1: Oh, man, I got to get there.
0: Yeah. They, uh, also interesting, though, the Southern League All-Star Game will be played at this ballpark that might not be a team next year. But, that would be odd. All right, so let's uh, let's jump to our trivia question. The question from last week was: Which player was the first to have their number retired?
1: Oh, that's right.
0: Do you have any any sort of any sort of clue?
1: My only my only guess would be because he had such a tragic ending to his career would be Lou Gehrig, number four.
0: Winner, winner, chicken dinner, right no, there. Oh,
1: really? Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah, Lou
0: Gehrig was the very first. It had to be a Yankee, too, because they retire every sure. number. Right. Uh, Lou Gehrig was the first player in baseball to have his number retired. He was retired in a ceremony on July 4th, very apropos for nice. Lou Gehrig, 1939, following his retirement due to amyotropic lateral sclerosis, yes. otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Yes. The Yankees next retired Babe Ruth's number nine years later.
1: Ah, wow. Nine years later. that My thought process was exactly what you said, though. Yankees retire a lot of numbers. <laughs> and I thought, think back, think way back. And then I thought, wow, you know, very tragic story. The end, the end of Lou Gehrig's career. And what, what do you know? I was right for once. There you go. Make sure you tell my yeah. wife, OK, because she thinks it's never.
0: You could make her listen to the podcast.
1: She has like once. <laughs> One up on my wife. Hey, dude, I have kangaroo court. Oh no! Yes, somebody uh, a, a Yankees fan, so we have to be nice. Uh, there's a lot of Yankees fans that listen to the show.
0: Love those Yankees. We're big fans.
1: Yeah, Well, we're not. I'm not going to be rude to the Yankees anymore because I want them. I want Yankees fans to listen to the show. So this gentleman uh, pointed out. Remember when you talked about the 80s and who hit the most home runs in the 80s? I did. Okay. Apparently, you when you read off how many home runs you read off the number that was their career totals, not their 80s totals.
0: Oh, well, that was pretty stupid of me.
1: Well, say. Well, I wouldn't go stupid. It just is an oversight. Maybe it was stupid. I don't know. Uh, The actual numbers for 80 through 89, Mike Schmidt hit 313 home runs, Dale Murphy with 308, and Eddie Murray with 274. Nice. Yeah. So there we have corrected ourselves.
0: Yeah, now... (laughs) I, I hate to break this to you, but I did that on purpose just to see if you would catch it, and you oh,
1: didn't. I did not. You, you had to wait till a, you,
0: <laughs> have, you had to wait for a listener to do it. Right. So I'm, I'm gonna have to find you. Um,
1: <laughs> I always get fined, even when I bring them up.
0: I, I know it's just it's one of those. I things. I have like three uh, grand, dude. Yeah, I know, and I'm gonna need to collect that pretty soon. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and just find you two dollars and sixty two cents for that one. Okay, so let me, let me just write that down. Break that down. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Now it's it's interesting here. I found where I ask you this question in my notes, and I have the '80s numbers right there next to their career numbers. So oh, really? That was yeah. That was a real test for you,
1: and I hate to say you failed, but yes. You well, you know, as usual, I'm on the losing end.
0: <laughs> All right. So there is, uh, but you do get out of that hole with a, with a great answer there for the trivia question. So I've got a new one for you here that we will reveal the answer next week of players who have retired and have at least one 50 home run season who has the fewest career home runs. Oh, wow. So I'm asking about, you know, you have to have at least one 50 plus home run season right. and you have to have retired because we're we're not going to, lump like Pete Alonso or or you know sure. Aaron Judge in there who sure. both have. Right. Hmm. So that's uh, something to something to capitulate on for a little bit.
1: I will ponder.
0: So uh that's uh that's it for B P. We're gonna let the grounds crew come out here and do their thing. And we took a straw poll earlier on the internet, but we didn't actually let anybody know about it. That's right. About who would go first. And I uh I was the tiebreaker and I voted that you did. So okay. Let's hear out Leon Day.
1: All right, uh, yeah, Leon Day. I like to call the greatest pitcher you've never heard of. Uh, he spent the majority of his career in the Negro Leagues, and he is, was an incredible athlete. So he would pitch, yes, but and when he didn't pitch, he would play center field, second base. Uh, there were games where he would play every single position except for catcher. So he would pitch and then play all the infield and all the outfield positions. The guy was just a pure athlete, you know. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Monty Irvin, a great ball player, uh, has this great quote about him. He says, people don't know what a great pitcher Leon day was. He was as good or better than Bob Gibson. So oh, wow, there you go. Uh, he was a better fielder, a better hitter could run like a deer. When he pitched against Satchel, Satchel didn't have an edge. You thought Don Newcomb could pitch. You should have seen day. One of the best complete athletes I've ever seen. So when nice. I, when I read that, I went, Okay, I gotta find out a little bit more. Okay. Comparisons uh, to Satchel are gonna be obvious because they're both great Negro League pitchers that were dominant. Uh, but they faced each other four times and Leon Day won three of those games. Wow. One of the wins was a one to nothing game, the only run being a home run by Leon Day.
0: Wow. So, <laughs> he just he just told everybody else take the day off. Not
1: a bad day against Satchel Page, right? Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, Larry Doby, uh, I, I, these are, this is a quote from him and, uh, you know, and he, he would know, uh, day could throw as hard as anyone. I didn't see anyone in the major leagues who was better than Leon day. If you want to compare him with Bob Gibson, Day had just as good as stuff, tremendous curveball and a fastball, at least 90 to 95 miles an hour. You talk about satchel. I didn't see anyone better than day. So
0: that's high praise.
1: Yeah. Lots of respect for this guy. So the more I read about him, the more I thought, wow, you know, this is impressive. So he played in New Jersey in the Negro Leagues, uh, most of his career. Cumberland Posey, who was a, a writer for one of the leading black newspapers, uh, he named his annual All-American team for Negro Leagues. And at the top of the list, number one was Leon Day, who he rated higher than Satchel Page, stating Leon was the best pitcher in Negro baseball, despite the fact that he was used daily either as a pitcher, outfielder, or infielder. So there's your background, his peers, Flat out said this guy was one of the greatest pitchers that ever picked up a baseball. Wow. That's impressive. Uh, a little, little bit about his history. He was born in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. in 1916. At a young age, he saw baseball for the first time being played, and he couldn't wait to start playing himself. So he started picking playing pickup and sandlot games. Um, there was a, a team in Maryland, the Baltimore Black Sox, that he would—it was a long stroll—but he would walk just to see those games. He would walk all the way to Baltimore and 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 watch the Negro League games. back
0: then. Wow, from
1: Alexandria yeah. to Baltimore—yeah, long walk. But man, baseball that is not short. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he was uh, a member of the Mount Winans Athletic Club when he was 12 and 13 years old. Um, his campus didn't offer a baseball program, so at the age of 17, he dropped out of high school. And joined the semi-professional team, the Silver Moons. And he had this great quote with the pitcher or with that club, he was a second baseman. And then he said, and I quote, but if the pitcher got in trouble, I'd say, give me the ball. <laughs> <laughs> he okay. walked up and just kind of give me the ball. Yeah, at age seventeen, here, give me the ball to get us out of this. In nineteen thirty-four, he was signed to his very first professional baseball contract at a whopping sixty bucks a month. So, you know, more than I make now. <laughs> uh, but it was, um, it was for the Black Sox, but they disbanded uh, in 1935 because they just didn't have any money. And um, he, so he signed with the Brooklyn Eagles in 35. And he was, um, he was taught at a crazy good pickoff move. And I only mention this because the guy that taught him has a great nickname. Pickoff move was taught to him by Ted Double Duty Radcliffe.
0: Ted Double Duty Radcliffe yeah, is a sweet name. Get, yeah, he'll he'll be he'll I think he'll probably make an appearance at some point in the show. he's yeah. got some good stories.
1: Double Duty Radcliffe, gotta like him. So they put him in the starting rotation. His first season, he went nine and two, threw a one hitter, and uh, he got elected to the East West Negro League All Star Game. It Was his first time. He was elected to seven of those, which uh, happens to be uh, the record for being elected to the East West All Star Game. Nice. He was there all the time. Uh, His best season in the Negro Leagues was 1937. He had, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but they had what they called the million dollar infield. And I might've mentioned it when I talked about uh, Mule Suttles, because it was Hmm. Ray Dandridge, Willie Wells, Dixie, and Mule Suttles on the infield. And, you know, one of the big differences between Satchel and Day was that Satchel was a big, tall, lanky guy. And, Day was just five foot nine, you know, and so it, he, they didn't expect him to throw as hard and as crazy as he did, but he had what they called a no windup pitch. And he he said he learned it by playing second base when he would turn around in a double play and have to throw the ball to first. He would throw basically from his ear instead of doing a long windup. he said it hurt to throw from a windup, so he just pitched like he was throwing the ball from second base to first base on a double play. That's quite a gun. Hmm. Um, yeah,
0: did he have it? Did he have a curveball? I did. think that would be kind of um, hard to you really yeah. have to snap it off.
1: Yeah, they actually said he had a, a pinpoint accuracy with his curveball, hmm. and uh, yeah, in 1937, he was 13 and 0 with a 302 earn run average and a 320 batting average, and he hit eight home runs. So, <laughs> not a bad year for for Mr. Day. Um, no, in uh, on July 31st, 1942. He set the Negro League record for strikeouts in a game. He struck out 18 batters from the Baltimore Giants. It was a one-hit shutout. The only hit happened to be a bloop single by, and again, I love the name, a bloop single by Pee-wee Butts. (laughs) That's B-U-T-T-S, Pee-wee Butts. So I'm glad it's not my nickname, but, you know. It is now. (laughs) Johnny Washington, aka Pee Wee Butts. <laughs> uh, the the uh, is this kind of an interesting thing. Uh, the Eagles didn't go to the didn't go to the they didn't win the pennant they, saying, they didn't go to the playoffs. But somehow, Day weaselled his way into the Negro League World Series. Basically, what happened was the Homestead Grays decided they were going to borrow Leon Day. <laughs> From the Eagles, I kid you not. Just for the World Series, we'll take the best pitcher in the league. So they said basically he was on loan from the Eagles. (laughs) And, of course, they pitch his heads up against Satchel and the Monarchs, and he beats them 4-1. to So, they see, they were down three games to none, and so they needed the win, so they brought in someone who didn't play for them. In response to that upset, the uh, newspapers actually started ranking day ahead of Page as the best pitcher in the league. For 42 and 43. He pitched really well, won the game. And for his performance, he was awarded, get this, $100 and a train ride back to Baltimore. <laughs> wow. Thank However, you very much. Yeah. Thanks, guys. I just threw a genius game, but oh, well. Um, actually, what happened was the outcome of the game was tossed. There was an appeal by the Monarchs and the league went, yeah, that's not really fair. Bringing <laughs> someone else's pitcher. Um, so they, they, they basically said you used unauthorized players so the game doesn't count. And they replayed the game and the Monarchs swept the series. So Leon Day pitched in a World Series that he wasn't involved with either of the teams. Kind of interesting. Um, 1943. So we're moving along here. Um, he was drafted into the military. He was commissioned in the 818th Amphibian Battalion. So he was, uh, he was kind of in the middle of it for a while. After VE Day, he was stationed in France. And him and his fellow Negro League player, Willard Brown, were added to the roster of the Overseas Invasion Service Expedition, the OISE All-Stars. They're, they were coached by Philadelphia Phillies pitcher Sam Nahum. He was actually the player manager. And they absolutely dominated and got to the European Theater of Operations World Series to face the dreaded 71st Infantry Divisions team, which was put together of almost all Major League Baseball players. Contrasting that, the OISE was Negro Leaguers, semi-pros, guys that played in high school, so on like that. So they actually played the ETO World Series in front of 50,000 people in Nuremberg in Germany.
0: I remember somebody told
1: us this story. Yes. In an earlier episode. Yes. And he um, he pitched in game two for a 2-1 victory. And the All-Stars, the team pieced together of ragtag bands of players from wherever, defeated the uh, Major League team in five games and win the World Series. So they, another amazing feather in his cap. After he left the military, was discharged, he returned to the Eagles for opening day in 46. Now, he hasn't pitched professionally in you know since he was drafted he's pitched a little bit in the oisc team and all that stuff but his first game back he throws a no-hitter against the philadelphia stars walked three runners and there were two errors so there were five base runners but nobody scored nobody got a hit he he had his arm was apparently he had an arm injury but he just he was one of those guys that just fought through it he was hurting he led the league that year in uh Wins, strikeouts, and complete games with 19. All this with an injured arm. 19 complete games. Remember, what did we say last year? The leader who had two?
0: He, oh, I, I thought there were only like 19 complete games in the entire league. <laughs> there
1: may have been. And that was that was uh, Leon Day's complete games back in 1946. Not bad. Uh, he played his final seasons in the Negro Leagues in 1949 well, with the Baltimore Elite Giants. The statistics I was able to find on him were said that career he was 67 and 29. Um, But I did a little more research with league historians and so on like that. And they said, nah, the record keeping was so bad. We actually put him around 300 wins.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that that's like when I was looking up Josh Gibson's career home runs. Right. It's just the number is just clearly not
1: correct. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of wins. I mean, and this is, you got to remember he was pitching every two or three days. So, you know, you're going to rack up a lot of wins in a short amount of time if you're that dominant of a pitcher. The, the bummer about his career was the color line in Major League Baseball was broken too late and he was too old to really be considered for the majors. Uh, story goes, though, that Jackie Robinson, when he signed with the Dodgers, asked Day to join him uh, in on the Montreal Royals in 1946. But he said, you know what, I already signed a contract with Newark and I'm going back to the old ball club and they've been really good to me. So he he declined, but makes you wonder, doesn't it? What if he had gone? What if he had pitched at the same time as Jackie played? It would have. It, it's a. It's a. Who knows what would have happened? Kind of moment, you know. It's interesting. In uh, his postseason career, after he left baseball, he worked as a bartender and a security guard. So it was not the best. They didn't have the best retirement plans
0: in the Negro. League. No, was yeah. yeah, especially from the Negro leagues. I remember Cool Papa Bell. Just yeah. rock stories about him just rocking away on his front porch in this bad neighborhood in Kansas city until he died.
1: No, terrible, terrible. These are some of the greatest players I've ever play. You know, this is sad. These were those were tough times. He he actually had a lifelong dream of being in the hall of fame. I found a 1992 interview. He threw out the first pitch at an Orioles game in 92. And so he did an interview and he said that, uh, the Hall of Fame is a lifelong dream, he said. It would mean a lot to me to get into the Hall of Fame, to be grouped with some of the greatest players in history. So, March 9th, 1995, he was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Five days later, he passed away at the age of 78. Well, I'm
0: glad he got, I'm glad he was alive for that. Yeah,
1: that, that just, a little bit of a heartwarming story at the end there. So that's really all I got about that. I just, I, I found out about him. I started reading up on him, looking at his numbers. What a total legend, man. The guy could play ball. Leon, Leon Day was sort of regarded as the opposite of Satchel when it came to personality. Very quiet, reserved, where Satchel, Satchel was, you know, the ultimate promoter. I had a buddy of mine say, what's well, Satchel? Page the best marketing, self-marketer of all time. And I went, you know him or Gene Simmons, you know? So it's interesting. He didn't get all the accolades um, or he doesn't get them to this day because he doesn't have all the cool stories about barnstorming and sending all the outfielders in to sit on the bench so he could pitch the last out and get the guy, you know, stuff like that. That's actually used to do. Leon was just a quiet, you know, I'll go out and get it done kind of guy. So he didn't have all the hype. But uh, boy, looking back now, wow, what a ball player!
0: Yeah, thank you. I did not I did not know that much about. Mr. Yeah, he does, does again, still sounds like a, a Motown singer.
1: <laughs> yeah, I couldn't find anything about him singing with Motown, but he apparently used to sing in the shower. So Ah, that's good enough. Yeah. Good enough.
0: All right, so that's uh, that's good for our first story. I would like to uh, fast-forward us a little bit from, from where we ended with you all the way up to 1994. Now, 1994 was kind of a dark year for baseball fans, Of course, it ultimately ended up having a a work stoppage, a strike, whatever we're going to call it. But we ended up with no World Series that year. That was the first time since 1904 that that had happened. And again... I am not here to talk about the strike so much. I want to talk about the 1994 season, what was played, and kind of the things that we didn't get closure on because the season ended. So let's start at the beginning, though. Let's go all the way to February 7th, 1994. We're just six months past uh, Michael Jordan announcing his surprise retirement from the NBA, the Chicago Bulls. Okay. And he decides he wants to take up baseball. Now, no one really knows why he decided to take up baseball. There are really two theories, and I'm not going to go into these. One is that he was being suspended from the NBA for gambling, which he is a known oh, heavy gambler.
1: He likes to play uh, play the old casino games.
0: And, and some of the, you know, they found checks of his written to people that had, uh, you know, kind of some underworld ties and stuff. So one of the theories is that he was suspended for at least one year. So he said, I'm going to go play baseball while I do that. Another one is that his father had, you know, unfortunately his father was murdered Mm -hmm. uh, a year before. And one of the things that his father had said is that he always wanted his son to be a baseball player. Yeah. So maybe he did this to, you know kind of be in the memory of his yeah. of his
1: father that's but what that's what I always heard
0: I always heard the, the prior one <laughs> the suspension <laughs> so uh Chicago White Sox sign him owned by Jerry Reinsdorf mm-hmm. uh, knows Michael Jordan very well obviously Jordan playing there in Chicago with the Bulls he plays with the White Sox for most of spring training but then he spends the regular season with class Double A Birmingham, the Black Barons. Which there are a ton of you know documentaries and podcasts about his time in the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. He bought the team a bus, a new nice Real new nice. tour bus, and everything. <laughs> so really interesting. He ended up hitting two oh two with three home runs and fifty one RBIs uh, that season. Not stellar, but he did steal thirty bases, which wow. is pretty impressive. He knew he was never going to get up to the big leagues, though with the work stoppage once it once we're kind of jumping ahead here, but he knew once the work stoppage came up, you know, all these guys were going to get sent to the minor leagues. They could start, you know, keep playing. And he was never going to get anywhere. So he ended his baseball experiment in 1995. And soon after that, he rejoined the NBA and went on and became even more Michael Jordan in the NBA. Yeah, he was pretty good. So April 1st through April 3rd, so this is right before opening day, in BC Place, in Vancouver, British Columbia, the Seattle Mariners, the Colorado Rockies, the Toronto Blue Jays, and the Montreal Expos hosted an exhibition tournament.
1: But, I'll tell you what, Vancouver's a baseball city. The Just the sheer amount of people they send down to watch the Blue Jays play the Mariners. It's insane. <laughs>
0: All right, so now April 4th, opening day. Wrigley Field, we've talked about him before. Chicago Cubs outfielder Tuffy Rhodes hits three home runs on opening day. Yes. Off Doc Gooden.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and drives the fantasy baseball leagues nuts. Yeah. Because all of a sudden he went from a non-player to valuable, in some people's minds anyway.
0: Yeah, so Tuffy became the first player in Major League history to hit Three home runs in his first three at-bats of the season. But, you know, despite that, the Cubs being the Cubs back then, they still lost the game 12-8. to Uh, Rhodes only hit eight more the rest of the season and 13 over his six-year Major League career where he was never... Never a starter, but then, of course, he went and had a great career in Japan, tying Sadahara O's season home run mark of 55 in 2001 yep. before Sadahara O decided nobody's going to pitch to this guy the rest of the, league, uh, the rest of the year now.
1: I remember you telling that story. That was brutal, not, not bitter at all. No, no.
0: <laughs> all right, so now let's jump ahead to June 13th. Ryan Sandberg announces his sudden retirement. 34-year-old Sandberg not playing, you know, anywhere close to what he used to. Uh, his slugging, uh, he only had nine home runs in 117 games the year prior, and he was only batting .238 through the first 57 games of the season. So he retired. He could have stuck out his contract, which would have made him $16 million in guaranteed money. Yeah. But he said, hey, you know what? I don't have it anymore. I'm not going to take their money. Which, wow. Good for you, Ryan O.
1: Yeah, seriously, that's like the opposite of Pete Rose.
0: So he sat around for about a season and a half, and then in 1996 he said, you know what, I want to play again. <laughs> so he came back, had a good year, not you know not MVP, Rhino, but he had a good season, and then uh, he retired after the 1997 season. So he played two more years after that. Gotcha. I remember this. Uh, do you remember Darren Lewis for the San Francisco Giants? Absolutely. d Well, after 392 games— in the outfield, without making an error to start his career, he finally committed an error against the Montreal Expos. That mark of 392 errorless games by an outfielder did not stand that long, actually. Nick Marcakis broke it in 2015. Huh. So I guess it stood for 20 years, but...
1: Huh. That's, that's quite a record, though.
0: Yeah, I did. I had never heard Nick Marquecas' name in terms of that kind of record, but... Wow!
1: There, there you go.
0: July twelfth, Moses Alou walks off the National League with a double for an eight to seven victory over the American League in the All Star game. John Hudak of the Houston Astros—I remember that name. He became the first pitcher in Major League history to appear in an All Star game before ever being credited with a Major League win.
1: Oh, that's crazy! Um,
0: Fred McGriff had a two run home run in the ninth to tie the score, and he was named the All-star MVP.
1: The crime dog. July
0: 28th, Kenny Rogers of the Texas Rangers throws the 14th perfect game in Major League history. Surprised it wasn't against the A's because he just killed the A's. Yeah,
1: well, he knew when to hold him and when to fold him. it's terrible. Sorry. He knew when to
0: walk a guy and when to give up a home run. When to
1: give up a run. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: All right, August 11th. The final game of the major league season is played on this date. The next day, the players' strike begins. Minor league baseball was not affected, and the strike was several. It was about several things. Uh, biggest, of course, being money. Owners wanted a salary cap. Yada yada. Like I said, I'm not going to go into the actual. Inner workings of why they were striking. September fourteenth, the remainder of the major league season, along with the entire postseason, is canceled by then acting commissioner Bud Selig. We were 34 days into the strike. There will be no World Series for the first time since 1904. The standoff, though, would end when Judge Sonia Sotomayor of the United States District Court, not the uh, not the Supreme Court yet, in the Southern District of New York issued a preliminary injunction against the owners on April 2nd, 1995, the day before the season was scheduled to start with replacement players. The strike came to an end after 232 days. And as part of the terms of the injunction, the players and owners were bound by the terms of the expired collective bargaining agreement until a new one could be reached. So with that, the teams then played a shortened 144 game season the next year. So I remember in, in in that spring of 1995, I was in college and I was traveling with the women's basketball team doing radio. And I remember we took the trip down to Arizona State and University of Arizona right during spring training. Mm. And I remember because the Angels, the Angels spring training uh, stadium is right off the the freeway right by the uh, right by the airport. So I remember we were driving past it and I looked the other way. I could not bring myself to look at the scabs playing <laughs> and, and practicing. That was my that was my protest, very effective. <laughs> yes, obviously. So let's talk about a couple of things here. The big story everybody talks about in 1994 beyond the strike is what if the season had finished? The Expos at this point had tallied a 74 and 40 record. 34 games over 500. Wow. Six games ahead of the second place Atlanta Braves. This is also the first season where the we have three different divisions in both the American and National League. Right. Mm. This would have been the first wild card uh, year for the playoffs as well. Also in the National League this year, the Cincinnati Reds were half a game up on the Astros in the Central, and the Dodgers were three and a half games up over the San Francisco Giants in the West. But just looking at this roster, I mean, they were so dominant this year. They were so young. They had only three players over the age of 30 on their roster. And just look at the starting lineup. Darren Fletcher, Cliff Floyd, Mike Lansing, Will Cordero, Sean Barry, Moses Alou, Marquise Grissom, and Larry Walker. Wow. So the oldest player on that team of the starters was their third baseman, Sean Barry. He was 28. Old man. Uh, their pitching staff was, you know, they've got Ken Hill, a young Ken Hill. Jeff Vesara was 31 years old at this time. Oh wow! <laughs> so he was already an old man. <laughs> but then you've got a 22-year-old Pedro Martinez. Oh yes. You've got John Wetland setting up uh, in the bullpen. I mean, they've got they've got a really good team and a really really young team. Obviously, we know that the Expos moved from uh, Montreal to Washington shortly after this, just killed any kind of momentum that they had. Sure. Uh, The Yankees were uh, in first place in the American League. They were actually having a very good dominant season. They were six and a half up on the Orioles. They had a 70 and 43 mark. In the Central, the Chicago White Sox were having a bit of a renaissance. They were 67 and 46, one game above the Cleveland Indians. And then the AL West is just a disaster. If you remember, this is the year that everybody was questioning, you know, are we going to have a team finally make the playoffs? Yes. Under 500.
1: Yes. They, they were called the AL worst back then.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the Texas Rangers were in first with a 52 and 62 mark. So 10 games under. The A's were only a game out. And the Mariners were only two. We were close. The, the California Angels, the California Angels at that time, they finished 47 and 68. Only five games out. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, boy. The Yankees and the Expos had the best records when this strike went down. Uh, they didn't get a meet in uh, on a baseball diamond in October, but they did meet in the sands of Kauai for something called the Cuervo World Series of Beach Volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Where else would they meet, you ask? Uh, Promoters uh, invited two men teams representing all big league clubs to play in a round-robin tournament. The expo sent Cliff Lloyd and Moises Alou, though the ultimate winners, though, were represented by the Yankees, who sent... Now, just... In 1994... And the New York Yankees, you've got Paul O'Neill. You've got Bernie you've got a young Bernie Williams. Mm-hmm. You've got some some really good players. The Yankees sent Mike Gallego and Pat Kelly. <laughs> Wait, they is Bongo? Had, yes, they had to have been the two shortest guys on the roster at that point. I think too.
1: Gallego's like two foot three.
0: <laughs> but they won the thing. <laughs> well
1: athleticism trumps, I guess.
0: Uh, Don Mattingly is one of the big stories that the Yankees never made the playoffs. And here he is. He's on this team, this young, good team that looks like they're going to make the playoffs. Uh, Mattingly was going to retire after the 94 season, too, but the strike drove him to come back the next season. He did finally make the playoffs before losing to the Mariners in five games on a double into left field corner. Oh, yes. At the kingdom by Edgar Martinez, scoring Ken Griffey Jr. I, that's, I feel like I have to say that entire sentence. <laughs> You can't just say they lost to the to the no, Mariners in no, five because that that play is so seminal. That, yes, yeah, it really is. Uh, but uh, that was 1995, not 94. Obviously, I have made it clear on here um, how much. I like Don Mattingly and how much I loved him when he was on the Yankees. I want to point listeners to a great episode of another baseball podcast, Baseball Beyond Batting Average. They just did an episode where they focused on both Kirby Puckett and Don Mattingly, really really digging into their stats. And they had an interesting discussion on why Kirby Puckett is in the hall and Don is not. Hmm. Their numbers are strikingly similar. I mean, Just there, they had such similar careers offensively. They postulated, though, that Puckett might have gotten in because of his postseason numbers, while Mattingly only had that one year in the playoffs. Sure. I also think it's, you know, you mentioned Lou Gehrig and why they might have retired his numbers because of his tragic fate that befell him. Yes. And I think that might also have to do with Kirby as well. One day in the middle of the season wakes up and has a black spot in his sight that won't go away. And then, of course, he died. I mean, he got into the hall before he died young, but a little bit of tragedy there that might have helped as well. As I mentioned earlier, the White Sox uh, were also having a great season. So were the Indians, who were still on a 40-year playoff drought at that point. They were right behind the White Sox, as I mentioned, one game. That was also the first year of Jacobs Field in Cleveland, which replaced the cavernous mistake-by-the-lake Cleveland Municipal Stadium. That thing was just huge, too. It was ridiculous. Uh, Cleveland was only a game behind the Sox, and they held the inaugural wildcard spot. The Tribe had no playoffs since Willie Mays caught Vic Wurtz bomb to center field at the Polo Grounds 40 years prior. Hmm. Okay, so we talked about the AL West, and it was, you know, kind of a mess. Do you remember, though— that uh the Mariners, I they were only two games back. They would have had to play the final two months of the season on the road. Yes. Because the ceiling tiles inside the, Kingdome the kingdom were falling, falling down apart.
1: <laughs> So we blew it up. You know.
0: Now they played on the road for a a yes. couple of of what should have been homestands. Yes. Yeah. They were going to, they were going to be a team without a a home for the rest of the year. Yeah. Matt Williams of the San Francisco giants. We've talked about this and Ken Griffey jr. Were both on a pace to at least tie Roger Maris's then 33 year old season home run mark. They both uh, or Williams. I'm sorry, had 43 blasts at this point, which was right on pace to match that 61 and Griffey had 40. Wow. Houston's Jeff Bagwell was at thirty nine, so he was right in there. And then Frank Thomas had thirty-eight. And not as skinny, but not as roided out Barry Bonds at that point had mm-hmm. thirty seven for the Giants. Tony Gwen, we might we might talk about him every now and then on the show. Oh, just once in a while. He was batting three ninety four wow. on August twelfth. Wow. When games stopped. Wow. Three ninety four. And get this, he was hitting four thirty nine over his last fourteen games leading up oh. to that.
1: That's a tragedy. That's terrible. I didn't even know that. That
0: is incredible that he was that close and he was that hot with like a, a month and a half left.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Frank Thomas was batting 353, was on a pace for over 150 runs and 150 walks. Earl Webb's 1931 record of 67 doubles was being challenged by three players. Chuck Knobloch, Larry Walker, and Craig Biggio each already had 40. Wow. at this point and the chicago white Sox lance johnson now do you remember what lance johnson's name was
1: uh yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was it mark
1: uh the uh dog <laughs> the one dog
0: the one dog I, there you go that's that is a five dollar fine dude I'm sorry. i got half of it yeah, but I've only told you that about thirty times during the I, I have run a, of the show.
1: I have a blackout spot in my brain for Lance Johnson. For Lance Johnson, apparently.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, he had a shot at twenty triples, so wow. I didn't didn't write down how many he had when, for that season. That's a lot. But it must must have been close. And Cleveland's Kenny Lofton was closing in on a hundred steals for the season. Nineteen ninety four. We've covered Batgate before. If you want to know about Albert Bell and people doing some Mission Impossible stuff at New Comiskey Park, go back. And I think it was in it was really one of our early episodes, like episode three or four. Oh, wow. We we talked all about that. The National League's MVP award was given to Jeff Bagwell. Which is interesting because Bagwell broke his hand on August 10th, oh,
1: that's right Right
0: before the strike. Yes, so he wouldn't he w- it would have been like Christian Yelich this last year where he wouldn't have been able to play the last month and a half. Right, so probably wouldn't have won the MVP. Probably not. But uh, he won the award <laughs> unanimously. Huh. I did want to just take a look at some of the other winners. Rookie of the Year was Raul Mondesi and Bob Hamlin. Do you remember Bob Ham, Hawk the Hamlin? Hammer, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he was a big guy. Uh, the Cy Young Award went to Greg Maddox and David Cohn. Felipe Alou and Buck Showalter, my buddy, were managers of the year. And then Bagwell was the MVP and Frank Thomas was the MVP in the American League. Gotcha. Minnesota Twins. Now, this was really interesting. The Minnesota Twins traded Dave Winfield to the Cleveland Indians for a player to be named later. The strike, though, canceled the season, so no more transactions could be made until it was they, they'd settled. Yeah. So the twins would officially they, they were officially listed as having sold Winfield to the Indians, but the actual transaction was something a little bit different than just selling him to the Twins in actuality. Instead, the twins ended up buying the contract outright. Team management went out for a meal with the Twins team management at one point, and the Indians paid the tab. That's how they bought him out. (laughs) So Dave Winfield was essentially traded for a a nice dinner.
1: Well, I mean, I've had some good dinners.
0: I'd never heard that before. That seems like something we really should have reported on like a year ago. No kidding. Uh, If you remember, replacement players created major issues for a lot of fans and teams, but for two teams in the American League in particular, it was a lot of problems. The Toronto Blue Jays would not be able to play games with replacement players or umpires in Ontario, you know, where they play their home games due to a labor code amendment passed by the Senate or whatever. I'm sorry. I don't know who the ruling body is in (laughs) Canada, but, uh, the uh, the Ontario Labor Board confirmed this and said you cannot play games here. So manager Cito Gaston at that point uh, went to work with minor league players, and the team announced that all games featuring replacement players would be played at their spring training facility in Dundee, Florida. Huh. They're like, all right, we're gonna play replacement players, but the Toronto Blue Jays will be housed in Dundee, Florida.
1: Huh.
0: The Baltimore Orioles, owned by prominent union lawyer Peter Angelos, <laughs> yes. announced that, you know what, we're not going to be using replacement players. Good call. They canceled their spring training and said, it's not going to happen. Nobody, nobody is playing for the Baltimore Orioles that is not a member of the union. A couple of players uh, during the strike went and played in Japan and played the 95 season there. Kevin Mitchell, Julio Franco, and Shane Mack, Huh? They they all uh, went over and played in Japan
1: in 1995. They were, they were good players in 95 too. Those were good. at least They're at least in costs. the states.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, might have been kind of a weird year for baseball on the diamond, but it was a banner year for baseball at the box office. Listen to these movies that came out in 1994: Major League Two, which not great, but it's a baseball movie. Little Big League. Angels in the Outfield, The Scout, and Cobb. Jeez. So n- I don't. there's five of them there. None of them really good. But still, it's five baseball movies. You, you don't even get one baseball movie right. a year no, now. So there you have it. I, I just wanted to go over some of the things that happened, some of the things that might have happened.
1: Hey, Great stuff, Jeff. Thank you.
0: All right. So. Mark, we have just talked about the 1994 season. Every time we talk about the 1994 season, we then go directly into Wax Pack Hero.
1: Please. Wax Pack Hero? Pull the wax Pack Hero. Gonna stars in his eyes. Wax back, Hero.
0: All right, so we're going to we're doing a little cleanup uh, episode today. We've been opening a lot of cello packs because somebody gave them to me yes. and uh, I'm just holding off ordering more actual wax packs until I can get rid of all these. So we've got a little bit of um, a little bit of a mismatch today.
1: Okay.
0: I've got a pack of 91 Donruss and I got a pack of 91 Flare. Hmm. So one of us is going to is going to get one and one of them because it's a cello pack I can see the first card. One of them is a huge advantage.
1: <laughs> oh good. I guess I should just pick one or two then. Uh,
0: yeah, so I've got one. I'm shuffling them here. I've got one in my left hand, one in my right hand. Which one would you like? I'm gonna go with right hand. You have taken the advantage, sir. <laughs> what do you know? I will give you uh, well, since you got the advantage, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I'm gonna be the home team. Okay. So I'm gonna have you go first. Uh you chose the 91 Don Russ. And the reason you get such a distinct advantage is because the top card is a Don Russ Diamond Kings Ooh. featuring a Hall of Famer.
1: Oh, beautiful.
0: No mustache, but it is a Hall of Famer. So you are starting out with a Roberto Alomar. Nice. Diamond Kings. So five cents. Uh, uh, so you get, yeah, you get five cents right off the bat and that card is worth two cents. Nice. All right. Your next card is a checklist card. So nice work there. Mm hmm. Uh, here's a gentleman we've talked about recently, uh, Corey Snyder, outfielder for the Cleveland Indians. Nice.
1: I always like Corey Snyder.
0: Corey Snyder, uh, Corey is his middle name, by the way. His first name is James.
1: No kidding.
0: I didn't know that. I am having a hard time. He's, you, If you remember, he's really blonde, very yeah. fair. He usually had a mustache. I, he usually did. I, I think it's there. I'm going to give you one. All right. Next, we've got pitcher for the New York Yankees at this point, Mike Witt. Mm, mm -hmm. Started out with the Angels, obviously. This is, he is wearing real stirrups for absolute sure. He's got a mustache. I'm going to guess this is probably not going to score you anything other than those two cents. Scott Fletcher, second baseman for the Chicago
1: White Sox. Yeah, another nice middle infielder that's not going to be worth anything.
0: It is not. I remember him mainly with the Rangers, Mm -hmm. but um, he is not wearing a mustache, and I cannot see his stirrups. I would bet you he has real stirrups on, though.
1: Yeah, unfortunately.
0: All right, here's your second Hall of Famer. Ooh. Uh, It is one gentleman for the Oakland A's. He's got long hair and a mustache, (laughs) and he is uh, pitching from a mound.
1: I will give you those clues. I'm going to guess it's... uh... Kurt, yeah. no, no, no,
0: Dennis Eckersley. Let's go, Dennis. You are very correct. It is Dennis Eckersley. This card is not worth anything. He does have a mustache. Uh, Eckersley is famous for wearing the 2 and ones unfortunately for you. But you do get the five cents for being a Hall of Famer. Yay. Okay, you've got a rated rookie. I do not remember this gentleman, a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, Kevin Morton.
1: Not a clue. I mean, he was rated, but I don't know how high he was rated. So
0: in, in 1990, he was eight and fourteen, with a 3.81 ERA for New Britain, but hmm. uh, is apparently thought they were going he was
1: going to be starting in the big leagues. Apparently so. Okay. That card
0: though is worth five cents.
1: <laughs> well, there you have it. See, if there's any upside potential, it's got some value.
0: Uh, here's somebody that m- maybe should be in the Hall of Fame. We've mentioned him already once in this podcast, the crime dog,
1: oh. Fred McGriff. Gotta love Fred McGriff.
0: Uh, that card is worth three cents. Yay. Fred McGriff always had a mustache. Yes. And I cannot see his stirrups in this picture, but all right. So that was worth four cents. Another gentleman that we've mentioned earlier in this podcast, Kevin Mitchell.
1: Oh, yeah. Kevin Mitchell, who we talked about recently, misplaying a ball completely in left field, sticking his throwing hand up and catching it
0: and he will forever be immortalized with that. Absolutely. That card is worth 3 cents. He does have real stirrups and oh my. he usually has a mustache, but I really cannot tell on this one.
1: Yeah, it's possible he was was bald-faced.
0: All right. Uh, now uh we've we've already had one wit here in this pack. Now we've got Bobby Witt. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of him. Yeah, you've heard of him for the Texas Rangers. Yes. Definitely got a mustache. Definitely wearing real stirrups on this one. It's got a good look going on there. Nice card's not worth anything though.
1: Well, I appreciate the mustache and stirrups, Bobby.
0: Robert, Bobby, Andrew, Wit. Wow, th- what a pack you have got! Oh my God! I'm Whoa. sorry. I just looked at your final five cards here. I'm gonna have some some work to do. <laughs> Another Hall of Famer. Wow. We've talked about him earlier on this podcast. Weird. <laughs> well, we talk about Mr. Tony Gwynn quite a bit. Oh yeah, so.
1: sure. the great Tony Gwynn.
0: Uh, two four. Okay, so that card is worth four cents right off the bat. He's a Hall of Famer, so that's nine. He's got real stirrups, so that is ten, and he always has a mustache, so that's an eleven cent card. Woo, yeah, you're killing it. You are killing it. You get another diamond king. Jeez. Uh, not a Hall of Famer. He's a Hall of Gamer, but not a Hall of Famer. Dave Parker. Oh,
1: man, you got to love Dave Parker. The we Cobra. are family. Yeah.
0: So that card is not worth anything. He does have a, a mustache on. Um, but Dave Was he Parker. with
1: Pittsburgh or Oakland?
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean this, not- uh, in, oh, in this card, he's with the Brewers. Oh, that's what I meant? Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Now, here we go again. We've got a Hall of Famer. Uh, He is pictured here with the Giants. And this is a highlights card. Breaks catching mark. The kid,
1: Gary Carter. Gary Carter, sure. Gary Carter was a huge name during his time.
0: Yeah, I mean, Gary Carter, I I think of him mainly as the Mets. Mainly because of the 86 team and on. But yeah, I mean, I think most people... When you really think about him, think of Expos. Yeah. Then he spent 90 at the Giants. 91, he went to the Dodgers. And then for his final year in 92, he returned to Montreal. Hmm. That card is, believe it or not, not worth anything. And you're just going to get the five cents because I can't see his stirrups. Okay. Well,
1: five cents for Gary Carter. I can do that.
0: Next catcher for your Seattle Mariners. And it's not Dave Valley in 1991. Who do you think it is?
1: Mm, Scott Bradley. There you go.
0: (laughs) I think I've asked you that before and you always get it.
1: Yeah, I I kind of remember. I remember Bradley for some reason, but I can't recall why. uh,
0: Probably because he hit 200 points higher than Dave Valley.
1: (laughs) Uh, So that is uh, no value,
0: but he is wearing real stirrups. And then your final card is the Swiss utility knife, the super utility infielder. That I grew up with. He was the first guy I ever heard had this label on Jose Acendo. Oh sure, St. Louis Cardinals.
1: Yeah, he he was man solid. Could play anywhere. Card's
0: not worth anything. He does have a mustache. He does have real strips. I remember he was. Uh, I think he coached third base for the Cardinals for a while too. Hmm. He's been around as a coach. But yeah, Mike, that guy played everywhere and
1: played well everywhere. Yeah,
0: fifty cents is your total. That is.
1: That's a good score.
0: <laughs> That's a good score any week. I, I I'm not sure I'm going to be able to to beat
1: that one. That's a tough one. But then again, you've pulled out some miracles before.
0: I have, but I, I mean, the the 91 flares aren't exactly uh, keeping well, there.
1: Yeah. Maybe you need an yeah. error card. That's right. Didn't that do it for me? One yes, time? <laughs> it did. But but it was the regular corrected card that was worth more than the error.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to start off here with a dominant closer of the day, but I'm going to guess he's probably not going to be worth a whole lot for the Cleveland Indians' Doug Jones.
1: Oh, Doug Jones. Definitely got a mustache, though, right?
0: Oh, definitely got a big bushy one. Yeah. Nope, that is not worth anything. Now, it is, we have opened 91 Flares before, but it's just odd. The back is in color, very similar to score, but there's a huge color photo on the back of Mm -hmm. these. But uh, I can't tell. I really can't. I think those look like two and ones. I'm going to I'm going to have to knock myself off there. I'm going to get nothing on that one. Mm. Uh, This guy, he is playing first base here for the Royals, but he is known as Mr. Marlin Jeff Conine.
1: Conine, the barbarian. Yes. Yeah.
0: And he would wear number nine. Nice. There's a jersey fact for you. There
1: you go stuff you learn um, on this show.
0: Now, that card is actually worth four cents. Ooh. And, he, and he's got real stirrups. So
1: He didn't quite make five cents. No, well, he did. No, I because mean, he, he, but just as, a, as what he's valued at. It oh, yeah. Just what's not the worth difference it. between a four cent and a five cent card, I wonder? It's huh. like half a point of war. Plus <laughs> <Trust> me. <laughs> All right, here we go.
0: I remember this guy. Craig Grayback. Grayback. He was a super, super utility guy as well. And I remember he was super short, five foot eight, weight 160. Wow. He could not play in games where it was particularly windy because (laughs) he would tend to get blown around. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, card's not worth anything, but he does have some real stirrups on. So that's a point. This guy we've had many times before, right-handed, lanky guy with science teacher glasses, Greg Harris, pitcher for the Boston Red Sox.
1: Greg Harris, absolutely. He's about half our commons, I think.
0: Yeah, prob- probably about. Uh, the other half no value.
1: Leonard Durham. What,
0: <laughs> what You and Bull Durham today. <laughs> Harris's card, not worth anything. He does have a mustache, does have stirrups, so that is two cents. Dwight Smith. Outfielder for the Chicago Cubs. Quite
1: oh okay I remember.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now he and who was the other young outfielder that uh, they had at the same time? Jerome Walton. Time? Jerome Walton. That's right. They were gonna they were gonna do some damage. That's right. But they did not. No. Um, that card's not worth anything. He does have a mustache. He also has the dreaded two and one son. All right. Here's my f- I I got an actual Hall of Famer. I'm excited about this. Shortstop for the St. Louis Cardinals, the Wizard of Oz, oh, the legend, Ozzy Smith. So you know I'm going to get a point for a mustache. Yeah. He's wearing real stirrups and he's a Hall of Famer. So there's seven right off the bat.
1: How could he not wear real stirrups? You know, I mean, he's Ozzie Smith, and that's three
0: cents. So that's a ten cent card. He, I liked him because they would they would kind of uh, wave in the wind when he did his uh, yeah. Jump, you know, his back running yeah. uh, backflip, yeah. All right, well, that's good. I got, I got a decent card there, Ozzy Smith. Here's a guy. How many times do we get bonus points if I say we talked about him earlier in this
1: podcast? I, boy, if we do, you, you're dominating.
0: Uh Julio Franco. Oh, sure. at at this point with the Rangers, he's wearing real stirrups and he's got that mustache. Uh, he, at 40? this point, I think he I think he'd only been in the league for 62 years right. at this point. I was point. gonna
1: say, is he 40? So he's mid career.
0: <laughs> yeah, this card is worth two cents plus an extra two for the stirrups and the mustache. All right, now here's interesting. We've got an NLCS team leaders card with Bobby Bonilla and Barry Larkin. Ooh. So I get I get a five cent right there because Barry Larkin's in the Hall of Fame. Yep. Bobby Bonilla sporting a mustache. Ouch. So that's six cents right there. This card is not worth anything, though. Beyond that, but good one. Not bad. I do not know who this guy is, and he is. You know, all these other ones are people in game. This is a guy who's got his headshot taken against a pure white backdrop, and he's wearing his home whites. So, <laughs> wow. Joe Bitker of the Texas Rangers. He was a pitcher, right? He was. Yeah, I remember a little bit. Well, this is his rookie card, and it's worth three damn cents. Well, there you go. (laughs) And he's got a mustache, so that's four cents. Joe Bicker, the
1: four-cent man.
0: (laughs) I'll take it. I love this guy. I was looking at this guy's stats the other day. Philadelphia Phillies outfielder, the man with no first name, Vaughn Hayes. Oh, yeah. I remember Vaughn Hayes.
1: Tall dude, man. Tall lanky. Six dude.
0: foot five, 186.
1: Tall and lanky. Yep. He, he swung a, He had a really bats left in his bat. And he, boy, if he got a hold of one. Wow. Yeah. It's just
0: Vaughn. V O N is a yep. weird first name.
1: Yep. Guy, I haven't it's, thought of him in a long time.
0: I think I think of him once a week. I'm not going to lie, just because I'm on Twitter a lot. So I find things and I'm like, oh, I want to that's, tweet about. That's Von Purple Haze, by the way. Von Purple Haze. Now, unfortunately, though, the card's not worth anything. He's not wearing a mustache, and he's got two and ones. So he's actually cost me a cent. Oh, man,
1: Von. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Jeez, how can you do that to your one fan? All right, this
0: guy, Gary Pettis. Son is a wide receiver for the San Francisco
1: 49ers. Yeah, he's my guy, too. Look at me.
0: I'm I'm such a football guy.
1: Yeah, you are. Uh,
0: (laughs) And I think Gary Pettis, he's still a base coach for the Astros, right? Yep.
1: Yeah, he was was a a friend of mine when he was uh, coming. He was signed with Oakland, and he was playing in the minor leagues. Just the nicest guy he could ever meet.
0: So his card is not worth anything. He does not have a mustache, which I thought he usually did, but he is wearing real stirrups. So that cancels out Von Hayes.
1: Gary Pettis is one of those guys that's extremely rare. Usually, to get a Gold Glove, you have for whatever reason have a decent batting average. Pettis could never really hit a lot, but man, his defense was so outstanding that had to he had the Gold Glove. Him.
0: He stole quite a few bases too. Yeah, he. Oh wait, that's strikeouts.
1: Let me look at the right.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he was about forty base, forty stolen bases, forty yeah. to fifty a year.
1: I mean, yeah. that's incredible, unbelievable defense.
0: All right. Uh, one of my last cards, pitcher, left-handed pitcher for the Atlanta Braves, Charlie Lebrandt.
1: <laughs> sure.
0: So at, let's see. When was Lebrandt born? He was born in 56. So that makes him about 802 in this picture. Right. No mustache, no stirrups that I can see. And I'm going to guess that's not worth anything. It is not. My second to last card is the dreaded checklist card. Lucky you. So now <clears throat> we come to my final card. And I have no idea what this is going to be worth. This is, it doesn't say what kind of card it is, but it is a artist's rendition of Dwight Gooden. Hmm. And he is wearing pins, uh, Mets pinstripes. He's in the middle of his windup and his glove is set aflame against the dark starry night with the moon in the top right. Nice. So I am not sure. It is seven of twelve. Now I am going to guess that I am not going to have a price for this. It is not because clearly this is a special card. Oh no! I found it. Yeah, these are these are listed as Flare Provisions. Oh, and there it is. Uh, let's see. There was a Ricky. Oh, there's a Ricky Henderson one that was worth fifty cents. Oh man, we got to find that easily card. the most expensive one here. Um, so this one is listed as 15 cents whoa alright so I'll take it I think it's too little too late but well, I will take
1: know, it it always helps to have a rally <laughs> in the ninth and you keep your crew around for an extra hour wow so I finished with 47 oh my gosh wow I made it close that, man you'd have been one closer that, without Von Hayes too
0: yeah Von Hayes would have just treated me right <laughs> That was close. I I thought your pack was much better than mine, but I Dang. saw I just chipped away.
1: Well, wow, just you're one Hall of Famer away from beating me.
0: Yeah. Or just a couple of mustaches and, and stirrups. But <laughs> a
1: couple of mustaches away.
0: So with that win, I believe you've won two in a row now. You've tied it up. We're oh. tied up at twelve apiece. Wow. All right. So there you have it. Another edition of Wax Packs Heroes. We do it every week. Uh, this is the time of the show. We start to wrap up. I want to thank all of our listeners. We really do appreciate you listening to us, uh, interacting with us on social media. You can find us at Two Strike Noise. That is at TWO Strike Noise on both Twitter and Instagram. We are pretty active on Twitter, especially if you want to Uh, interact with us there. We are in the middle of the spring training challenge where we're posting a different baseball card, which has a different look, a different category. Some uh, rules are set out. You can find all this on our Twitter feed. We're following somebody else's spring training challenge, but it's a lot of fun putting a lot of fun, fun baseball cards up there. Mark, I had a lot of fun talking about baseball history. I think it's something we should do more of. Can I convince you to do another show?
1: Well, Okay, yeah, I'll be back.
0: All right, sounds like a plan. Well then, uh, hopefully you will be as well. Our dear listeners, uh, thank you again for tuning in to another edition of Two Strike
1: Noise. Thank you, God bless you, have a great day.